This episode of Let's Think On It comes from an excerpt from O Brother Radio with Will Lockamy, Reed Lockamy, and Dr. Mark Westfall. And there is Dr. Mark Westfall. Thanks for hanging out. I feel like we haven't seen each other in a while, but we're confused on when the last time we hung out was, or at least I am. It was. <laughs> I think it was sometime last month. We did okay. ADHD, but it's been a while. That's right. At the end I have of this ADHD, month. so it's tough for me to yeah, I get really it. keep yeah. up with. It can be rough. All the stuff. Keep um, it on the ball. There you go. Uh, <laughs> but this is an important one tonight, and uh, we're doing the read, no read for these segments, of course. Uh, so, but that's okay. Anna's here, intern Anna, and so she'll be um, chipping in where, yep. where we misread on that as well. well. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about what we're going to be discussing this evening. Yeah. So, well, I don't, we haven't done this topic in three years um, or ever. In which is crazy years. to think that we haven't. I know. I'm surprised it hadn't come up. Most of the stuff. Right. Especially this one, which is a, a topic that is prevalent. In the Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So, yeah, we're going to talk about eating disorders, which. Um, most people have heard of, most people probably have a general understanding of, but I think we're going to learn a little more than most people's average knowledge tonight. And we've got a couple of guests coming in from um, Alsana, which is a place where they treat, help treat uh, eating disorders, among other things. And so the, the term eating disorder in general, I think, is a little bit of a maybe a misnomer because it focuses just on the eating, and really it's much broader than that. And that's what I think we're going to learn tonight is really what what people are struggling with when they have quote unquote an eating disorder. Um, do you see a large number of patients that deal with eating disorders? Me personally as a psychiatrist? Right. Um, that is not my specialty. You okay. tend to kind of specialize in that if gotcha. you do. I have seen plenty in my years and when I was in training um, I worked on an eating disorder uh, inpatient unit um, and had a lot of exposure. My first psychotherapy patient had a severe eating disorder, followed her for four years. It was great learning experience, did a lot of family therapy, um, really kind of how I quote-unquote got my teeth on, on psychotherapy, and it was a great experience. So I have a very um, fond connection to treating um, eating disorders, um, but it's a difficult treatment process. And this is one of those unusual ones in a sense of it, it affects, you know, your, it comes from your brain, but then it can also affect your body in a major way. Exactly. And have long-term ramifications. Yes, for sure. And, and with anorexia specifically, um, it's actually one of the more, um, I guess, uh, leads to death higher than many other types of mental illnesses. Um, so it's, it's a significant um, mortality rate. Um, I think mental illness, we talk about this a lot, is something that is hard for people that do not suffer from mental illness to understand. And this one could be near the top of that list because it seems like such an obvious of like, well, you can see in the mirror, right? Like that there's an issue. Oh, I great. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, probably it, because I've been guilty of thinking that. Well, it's exactly. It's a distortion in thinking um, and, and bod- of their body image, it's a distortion in viewing their body image. And um, it's it's also a um, a coping uh, distortion. Um, people using their their body and or what they do to their body to cope with stress uh, or other uh, psychological um, struggles. Um, so it's a disorder of coping, in, in my opinion. All but, right. Well, looking forward to learning all about it. We have some guests here tonight. Tell us who we are. All right, so we've got Amber Paris and Caroline Nichols, and both of them uh, come from Alsana, 
and I'm going to let them tell us a little bit about what they do. But they are eating disorder specialists. They're both uh, licensed clinical social workers, um, and they are trained specifically for working with patients who are suffering from eating disorders. When you when you said Alsana, that sounds like they both come to us from the land of the Alsana. land of Alsana. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Alsana is a treatment center okay. uh, here in Birmingham, and they've got a location in St. Louis, and I think one or two in California. Um, and it's a treatment program for um, eating disorders. So, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks yeah. for having us. So we got Caroline. Right. And we've got Amber. Mm-hmm. Try to get people's names and voices. <laughs> and for the audio. record, yeah, he pointed to the right and to the left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the right for Caroline, to the left for yes. Amber. So, um, yeah, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks. So um, tell the audience kind of uh, what you do and how you come to know so much about eating disorders. I can start. So I am the Director of Clinical Services for the PHP and IOP levels of care at Alsana. Um, PHP is partial hospital and IOP is intensive outpatient. It is. And I I always tell people those are sort of insurance terms. And so a lot of people get very confused when we say partial hospitalization. Really what that is is day treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, So we are able to offer a treatment programming day up to 12 hours a day to support our clients around um, meals, nutrition, psychotherapy, group therapy, those kinds of things. So this is very intense treatment. It is. It is intensive treatment. Um, We also offer an intensive outpatient level of care um, that can vary. Um, it, it, It mimics real life a little bit better than the PHP level of care does typically about four hours a day, three to five days a week, whereas so PH- pretty intensive so pretty intensive traditional outpatient treatment. Compared to traditional outpatient, so intensive outpatient, yes. Partial hospital is like being in the hospital all day and going home at night. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. So. Where the beds are way more comfortable. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spent the night in the hospital. Yeah. That is not yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. And Amber, how about you? Well, and with that, though, we do have some beds um, because we have a living option for people who are out of That's town. True. And I'm sure they are very comfortable. They're very, <laughs> they are very comfortable. Very it's, a, it's apartment living and, okay. and very much independent yeah. apartment living. So, yeah. And I'm the director of clinical services for our residential program that will be opening this winter. And so residential is the step of care right below the hospital. And so we offer 24-7 nursing and a lot more medical attention at that level of care. So more intense than more the intensive, intense. than the uh, partial hospital. Okay. This is living essentially living. on mm-hmm. on site mm-hmm. for yeah. so a month or two? people leave their lives for 30 to 60 days yeah. to come into residential okay. care. All right. Mm-hmm. So how did you guys um, come to get into the field of eating disorders? So I jumped right into eating disorders right out of college, um, so since 2009, and um, kind of am motivated by it personally because I'm in recovery from an eating disorder, had one in college and high school, um, and then have just kind of dedicated my career to helping people who struggle. And so um, really professionally driven, feel really passionate about people who are kind of in the grips of it and believe that healing is really possible so so you use the term recovery and I, I've mm-hmm. heard that a lot um, share with the audience what you mean by that why, why do why is the term recovery from an eating disorder mm-hmm. the way that um, it's uh, termed well because we believe people can be symptom free and truly have complete healing and have true recovery so I guess it sounds to me it sounds 
similar to the way people talk about um, a substance mm-hmm. um, abuse condition. Mm-hmm. Is that are there is there any analogy to that, or is that just happen to be an overlap of terminology? Well, there is some similarity. One thing that we think that's a little bit different, though, is that symptoms can go away. And so you're not always struggling, which is something that's a little bit different than the substance community. Mm-hmm. That was my question. Yeah. Was it, this is something that can actually mm-hmm. just go away and then yeah. you don't really have to struggle with it. Because right. you do hear that about substance abuses. You, you deal with it and you may never use again, but you deal, right. but you struggle yeah. forever. Yeah. Right. And so is that, is that if someone doesn't reach that level, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, let me ask it this way. Mm-hmm. Is that the expectation for everyone who enters treatment? I mean, is it always that successful? No. So I think there's different levels. It's sort of a spectrum, I think, of recovery, wouldn't you say? And, and, and it's a process. I think sometimes people take a step in recovery towards, or in treatment towards recovery, um, and they keep stepping for months and years to come. I think one thing though, we hold a lot of hope for people that they can be fully recovered. And I think that's a little bit of a shift in the way we've traditionally treated eating disorders. And because I think we've treated them in some way similar to substance abuse and we've used that language. And for a lot of our clients that doesn't feel hopeful, they they will say frequently like, sure, this person can recover, but I'll never be able to recover. This just will never happen. So we hold a lot of hope for our clients because we know that really the majority of people that do have eating disorders can fully recover from their eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, that can look different and it can take different lengths of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that is something that we try to instill in our clients and in their families of, it doesn't even really matter how long you've had your eating disorder. There is still hope for recovery. Mm-hmm. And we're actually starting to see some of that filter down through the research, mm-hmm. which is exciting. So what, what, is it, what does that show from, because um, from psychiatric research, the numbers don't look quite as, as rosy, mm-hmm. um, or at least they haven't over the years, mm-hmm. specifically for, it depends on which eating disorder we're talking about. And mm-hmm. I, I do not like the way that the... Uh, the DSM and the the the, the, um, uh, the way that we categorize illnesses. Mm-hmm. I think people aren't an illness; they live on a spectrum in a lot of different mm-hmm. different kind of categories. But essentially, the the psychiatric community has designated three main categories of eating disorders: anorexia, bulimia, and then compulsive or or um, binge, binge eating. eating. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It looks like we're coming yeah, let's up take on a, a break. quick break, and when we come back, I want to go through those okay. different uh, and, and figure out exactly what they are and, and um, why people may find themselves in those situations, what it means once you get to that situation, yeah. and then how you can find your way out of okay. that, uh, among awesome. many other things. But let's take a quick break. We come back, we'll have more with Dr. Mark Westfall, also hanging out with Caroline and Amber from Alsana as well. Back up to this. Okay, so let's talk about the different types of eating disorders. And I think there were three that you kind of mentioned earlier. That yeah, so the prevalent anorexia, ones that nervosa, bulimia, and then compulsive overeating or binge eating. Mm-hmm. They've changed names. Mm-hmm. I can't yeah. keep it all. Which is so funny because binge eating and compulsive odor, overeating, I rarely think of as an eating disorder, but mm-hmm. clearly that is. It's actually the most common. Mm-hmm. And you think, because yeah. I mean, generally speaking, eating disorder, you think of the, the not eating enough. Or you know, trying to be thinner. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's what I was going. I was actually going to go to our non-clinical uh, intern and actually ask her her thoughts on what do you think the definitions of each of these three are to put you on the spot? Because I want to kind of get <laughs> a, you know what the average person might think of these conditions. What do you know about each of these three? So let's start with anorexia. Okay. Um, 
just meaning not eating like at all yeah not eating enough right enough. that's that's generally what i think about, about that yeah. it's like yeah. you just don't eat the food you're supposed to eat to try to be thin yes the the, the uh, restricting caloric intake and or excessive expenditure of calories so that you are thin actually in their mind they're not thin which is mm-hmm. where the distortion comes in because in addition to restricting um there is a distortion of how they view their body and so um one simple way that i do it in the office is i, I have a a, a a gradient of images from clearly skeletal thin to obese mm-hmm. and i have them there's like 10 of them in a row gradually getting larger and have them circle the one they think they look like and underline the one they want to look like. And, you know, typically they'll circle uh, someone who is clearly larger than they are and they'll want to be thinner than that one, than they are mm-hmm. even. So um, so it's a distortion in the way they view their, their body, mm-hmm. um, which is the difficult part in treating. I, mm-hmm. I suspect you guys will mm-hmm. join me on that sure. is dealing with that distortion and the way they mm-hmm. feel about themselves mm-hmm. is that yes is that a fair assessment mm-hmm. and i think something that people don't often associate with anorexia is that you can there's a subtype where you can binge and purge and so i think a lot of times i'm getting ahead of the game here of like talking about what you think it is but with we often think about binging and purging with bulimia mm-hmm. and actually that can be a subtype of anorexia which people don't sometimes think of. And I think it's really important to understand that there is that subtype, um, kind of to piggyback on something that you said earlier, anorexia actually has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. And that binge purge type is the highest of that presentation. And so it's really important that people understand that 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 anorexia can present like present in that particular way. And it is incredibly, incredibly dangerous, lethal those kinds of yeah. things so it, we we have to intervene yeah um, so we've given Anna now a little tip on what <laughs> the next <laughs> next one is so you are uh, so wrong, <laughs> so, wrong. <laughs> so bulimia nervosa um is in your mind what do you think about that Anna uh throwing up mm-hmm. after eating mm-hmm. so uh characterized by uh binge eating mm-hmm. um large amounts short amount of time feeling disgusted about yourself or the the uh, event and then a compensatory behavior to rid yourself of what you've just done or burn off what you've just done um, and the difference between that and the subtype of anorexia would be and I'll go to our panelists mm-hmm. so um, weight and a drive for thinness often are more associated with anorexia so with bulimia you can be in a normal body size um, and the um, and that's something that sets it apart yeah and this can have really long-term uh, effects on your body I heard Jane Fonda was in an interview recently and I didn't realize she'd been bulimic for years and mm-hmm. um, but anyway and so they talked about the fact how I mean, it can kill you and down the road years and years and decades later you can still have all these serious issues because of it mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and I would say this like in my experience and Amber you may have a, a different experience of this but when folks are seeking treatment 
none of this is easy to talk about, especially to people that you don't know. But we find that a lot of our clients that are struggling with bulimia, so with that binge purge or even with binge eating disorder, there's a whole lot of shame associated with mm-hmm. that behavior. You mentioned sort of after the the binge, they feel disgusted. They feel a lot of shame. Um and so it's very difficult for our clients sometimes to even admit that this is something that's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of times even our bulimic clients can come in and talk more about restriction because that's the language that's easier mm-hmm. to talk about. And so we often have to develop a language around talking about binging yeah. because it has more shame. And unfortunately, I I sort of see it, and I don't think this is an okay thing, but I actually see sort of a cultural acceptance of restriction. That's a more socially acceptable thing to talk about and to be proud of, kind of, Mm -hmm. where binging, there's a lot of um, negative connotations associated with that culturally or societally. And even with patients, um, my experience is that patients with anorexia, there's almost a sense of accomplishment with their restricting, whereas with patients with bulimia, there's more of a disgust with their behavior. Mm-hmm. Is, it y'all's, is that y'all's experience as well? Yeah, I think the one thing I would say, though, with anorexia is I see a lot of self-hate. Mm-hmm. And so there's absolutely a tormented um, experience within within anorexia. So I... Yeah, I'd, I'm glad you said that. Because yeah. I did not mean to imply that they felt good about themselves. Yes, yes. Just that their ability to restrict yes they they're not as it's it seems to be less disgusting to them mm-hmm. to restrict than the bulimic feels about their yeah they their, may be deriving um, a, a false sense of self-worth and achievement and, and, achievement and yes. accomplishment that's, from being able to restrict that's my sense. Mm-hmm. where with with bulimia our clients report a, a very much a loss of control mm-hmm. I, yeah. I do not feel in control of this right. i can't stop much more yeah. compulsive yeah. I, I yeah. mentioned this earlier but it is so hard from the outside looking in to see someone who is anorexic to the point of like where bones and stuff mm-hmm. like you can really see the skeletal structure to understand like well, what you're looking in the mirror mm-hmm. and that has to make it harder on them as well what, what are they seeing when they mm-hmm. look in the mirror and and see i mean really when you get down to where yeah. you can see bones and stuff i, I it's really hard to understand. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of something that you guys said at the beginning, which is it's really not about the body. Mm-hmm. Like the things that typically clients are trying to starve away or get on top of or achieve have nothing to do with body weight. So usually it has a lot more to do with self-worth and perception of how they exist in the world. And so the disgust or the self-hate or the starving really is something towards that mm-hmm. effect and a lot less about the body. Mm-hmm. Do you see an analogy between that symptom and how people are dealing with those emotions and the symptom of cutting behavior mm-hmm. and how those people are dealing with emotions? Absolutely. Because both of them are, are somatic or, or body, body symptoms of and a coping mechanism, so to speak, of dealing with emotions. Yep. And we actually treat them very similarly. Mm -hmm. We want to understand the function of the behavior. Um, We talk a lot about behaviors and containing and changing behaviors, medical stability, but truly the heartbeat of treatment is understanding why they're doing it. Mm -hmm. So self-harm, restriction, binging, purging, it's really all the same discussion which is kind of weird if you think about it. Like you treat them very similarly, mm-hmm. but they look very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really focusing on those core beliefs that drive whatever behavior 
is happening at that time. Yeah, let's take a quick break. When we come back, um, I want to talk about how people find themselves in this. If it's something you're kind of born with, or is it because of situations that you deal with in your life? And this thing that I've learned already tonight, which is that you can actually be somewhat cured from this and not have to deal with it if you go through the right steps. And so let's talk about all that when we come back. We're hanging out with Dr. Mark Westfall here on Birmingham Mountain Radio. We're discussing eating disorders tonight with Dr. Mark Westfall and Will Lockamy. Uh, Anna is here as well, intern Anna Smith. And also we have Amber and Caroline here from Alsana. Are there statistics on like how many people, I hate to throw a question at you that you may not know the answer to, but statistics, uh, how, how does that work? Statewide, citywide, countrywide? Just how many people suffer from this? Because here's the reason I ask. I don't know anyone who's not connected in some way mm-hmm. to this mm-hmm. that doesn't know someone or isn't affected by this in some way. So it seems like the numbers would be, you know, much yes. higher than people may anticipate. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure of the I'm exact statistics, but I can give you the statistics, <laughs> but I think the statistics probably are um, not accurate because it is a very silent condition. So a lot of people don't reveal it. Um, just lifetime prevalence um, is for anorexia is um, about one percent of the population will have uh, anorexia, and that's for females. It is much more prevalent for females compared to men. Uh, clinically, in the clinical setting, it's about a ten to one presentation. Um, it's more like a maybe six to one in uh, in just diagnostic um, numbers. Uh, but if we had enough time, I would love to unpack why that might be so and might 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 be skewed. <laughs> uh, which the, the, exactly. Yeah. I, 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 granted, they're probably skewed, but these are yeah. the scientific quote-unquote right. numbers of sure. when you give surveys and people answer, this is the numbers you get back. Sure. And this is the same kind of surveys we do for all mental illnesses, mm-hmm. so they're all low. Yes. Okay. Because yeah, you got to think, I mean, guys think of this as being a female right. mental disorder and right. so they're like well i don't even if they think they have it they're probably like well i'm not gonna go tell somebody i have that yeah it seems like exactly. i also think it's a really good reminder that just observing somebody's outward physical appearance is not a good indicator of whether mm. or not they're struggling right um it, yeah. the presentations can just right. vary so yeah. so uh, bulimia is more like one and a half percent and then binge eating is three and a half percent uh just ballpark um, but again, those numbers are, I think personally, they're low. These are the scientific numbers, but I think they're low just based on the way that we gather data and the way that people don't reveal themselves. Exactly. So um, do we think this is something that uh, people are kind of like, you know, they're born with this and they're going to deal with it. They're, they're destined to deal with that. Or is it something that because of their environment and situations that they find themselves in, that that leads to eating disorders? Yes. Yes. <laughs> all of those all things. Okay. So all, the, all, <laughs> scientific, all the things, just yeah. The scientific numbers, and then we'll let our yep. panelists kind of talk about things. Um, 50 to 80% um, heritability um, for eating disorders. Um, mainly you look at this doing twin studies where you take identical twins versus uh, non-identical twins, and you look at the concordance rates, how many times they develop the same disorder, and you see a different difference. When they had the exact same genes, they're much more likely to develop it than when they don't have the exact same genes. Even though um, non-identical, non-identical twins, just like any siblings, um, share about 50% of their DNA, but identical twins share more like 99%. So we, it definitely has a genetic component, mm-hmm. but your environment plays a huge role, and mm-hmm. I'm gonna let you guys speak to that. 
Yeah, so I think the way that we sort of conceptualize this is that, yes, there is a genetic component, but there there also has to be sort of this perfect storm that exists in order for someone to develop an eating disorder. So, and Amber, please jump mm-hmm. in. Um, so that can be, um, you know, the genetic predisposition, um, perhaps some sort of um, set of personality traits that, that may make transitions much more difficult or like temperament temperament Mm -hmm. plays a big part in this and then the environment so what messages are they getting about their bodies about their worth from media from those kinds of things um and then life circumstances things like trauma Mm -hmm. um you know big life events that can really shape the fabric of someone's um life experience and what they may develop over time Mm -hmm. those things can play a big part and so it's really not one thing, which I, th- I think is really important. It's important for families to hear that families are not to blame for mm-hmm. this disorder. Um, really, no one or no one thing is to blame. It's the, a perfect storm, which I think is good for clients to know about the hereditary piece, too, because that's a compassionate bit of information. Um, they didn't choose this. It's right. not their fault. It's not a fad. It's not a trend. It's not a diet. It's a mental illness. And so it's just this perfect series of events. Mm-hmm. Has it gotten more common to our knowledge in the last, you know, 50 years? I mean, it, and is it more common in certain um, cultures and mm-hmm. countries than others? It would appear that way. Um, but I don't know if that's because more people are coming forward or if it's because of changes in our culture, but there is a racial slant around who seeks treatment, mm-hmm. um, but that's something we see across all mental illness. Socioeconomic, a socioeconomic slant as well for those seeking treatment. Mm-hmm. And then Western cultures are more likely to discuss and, um, yeah, to come out with struggling with an eating disorder than Eastern cultures. Mm -hmm. So if you were to give eating disorders another name, Mm -hmm. what is it really a disorder of? (laughs) Because it's not really a disorder of eating. Right. I mean, the first thing that came to me, and I'm a very emotional driven creature but I was thinking it's a disorder of woundedness Mm -hmm. like there's an internal wound that has created a need to use food as a way to compensate or deal with life and they don't know another way and so like something is wrong um so that was what it came to I mean I I think I would say the same thing just like I would say the same thing about somebody struggling with substance abuse there's some sort of woundedness some sort of hole some sort of something that is trying to either be expressed or filled or fixed through behavior whatever Mm -hmm. that might be and so is that is that not one of the treatments to uh, help people with this uh, who struggle with this is Mm -hmm. addressing how they think and how they behave, mm-hmm. i.e. cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Is that one of the approaches mm-hmm. to Absolutely. to treating this? And tell us how that works. Yeah, we really talk about two buckets of treatment. We talk about more of a cognitive skills-based treatment, which would be things like cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. which the audience, really gets at the thoughts, the emotions, the behaviors. So it's very tangible therapies. And then the other bucket, we talk about processing therapies, and that's where you're going to get more at the 
what's going on? Let's talk about the woundedness. Why did this develop to begin with? And so we really think it's those treatments in tandem that create recovery. So dialectic behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. uh, my understanding of that is it's part, part of it is helping people develop tolerance mm-hmm. to their brain's typical response mm-hmm. to distress. Is that Correct. accurate? People yes. that tend to respond well to that, um, whether you have an eating disorder or whatever mm-hmm. you're treated for, it's used for a lot of different things, but mm-hmm. tend to have difficulty regulating their emotional response. Is that right. accurate? Correct. And we, we see that our clients typically, especially upon admission, have a very short or, or narrow window of tolerance for uncomfortable emotion. And so DBT or dialectical behavior therapy also helps um, helps us get clients to a place where their their window of tolerance is wider so that they can tolerate more discomfort without using behaviors to compensate for that or to soothe or, or numb out or those kinds of things. So, mm-hmm. so you're kind of desensitizing them to their um, their typical reaction or their, or their mm-hmm. emotion, mm-hmm. Um, which feels for them very. Do they? Do you think they feel out of proportion? To oh, I think the it quote feels unquote terrible. Average <laughs> individual? Yes, I think, I it, think it, it feels yes. awful. <laughs> Our, um, we sometimes give the analogy of it's like you think you're going down a green slope on a ski slope and instead you accidentally go down a double black diamond (laughs) and that's what it feels like when Mm -hmm. we're asking them to change their behavior and then they get down to the bottom of the slope and then we tell them to do the slope again and they're Mm -hmm. like you've got to be kidding me (laughs) I just did it once and I barely survived and you want me to do it again Mm -hmm. and that's really what it feels like changing brain chemistry so if someone is born with this difference in feeling in other words they feel more intensely Mm -hmm. then it makes sense that they would try to come up with a way to manage the these feelings Mm -hmm. and what I'm hearing and what I've seen is that they come up with a a physical way Mm -hmm. to to contain their feelings Mm -hmm. Um, with someone who cuts it's by cutting Mm -hmm. with someone who has an eating disorder it's by um, eating Mm -hmm. or um, regulating their body size kind of thing. So it's really a taking control of their emotions with somatic mechanisms, so Correct. to speak. So that again, it's not really a disorder of the somatic part. It's a disorder of their emotional mm-hmm. intensity and the way mm-hmm. that they cope with that. Is that accurate? That's true. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pretend like I knew exactly what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and is this something... Take a little deep for you. Is Sorry. this something that you found people talked about, like amongst your friends groups, if someone was dealing with it? Did you ever have... I just don't know if it's something that girls would discuss with each other or... Uh, not really, but you would see it on, like, TV shows and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, Amber, did you discuss it with it when you were dealing with it yourself? Is that something I you talk to people about? I hit it a lot. No, I think it's a hidden disorder. I think the function of it is I need this to survive so no one can take this from me. Mm-hmm. And so there's definitely a hiding process. And I think that's one of the things that can feel so terrible is that we know that the eating disorder does serve a function. And and the function maybe it used to serve is actually doing more harm than good now. And so it feels terrible really to tell our clients like, yes, go back down that double black diamond and you're going to be fine. 
but they can't see that and and they struggle the whole way down um, because we know that their eating disorder actually serves a function that has maybe kept them safe or kept them alive um, has kept them from acting on suicidal ideation or things like that so that is it gets very complex when you start to think about it in that way as, as the eating disorder is almost a protector or a protective factor. So I think we can agree on this. Um, even though this clearly is something that people are not comfortable talking about and maybe in general don't talk about, they need to be talking about it. And that's where you guys come in. Mm-hmm. So Alsana, again, um, you guys come to us from the land of Alsana. <laughs> uh, Alsana.com, which is yes. A-L-S-A-N-A, just like it sounds. Alsana.com is where people can go for more information and to find out about your services mm-hmm. and to reach out and to be able to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm assuming they can do that kind of privately without having to admit stuff to their friends or family, right? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. We Absolutely. will keep everything completely confidential. Mm-hmm. Because it is important. I've learned stuff. That's good. I like to I like Let's to take go. away from these discussions we had that I've learned things, and I did today. I learned things. Well, and thanks again for allowing you know us to do this periodically and and help uh, reach out to people and and uh, educate the general public about things of mental health and behavioral uh, things. Well, gosh, I, I think people would rather hear this than us playing catchphrase, probably. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is generally what happens. Um, no, this is great. Um, Caroline and Amber, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Again, sure. com is where you can go for more information and uh, to find out if you need a place to talk to people. That That is a great start right there. Anna, thank you as well for sitting in for this. And of course, as always, Dr. Mark Westfall. Don't forget, you can find all of these segments that we do under the podcast, Let's Think On It, anywhere you find podcasts. Tons of really great topics that we've covered over the last few years. You can go back and look at all those. Every now and then, I don't like the sound of my own voice. I have to turn down the radio if it comes on. But with that said, every now and then I'll think of a topic that we talked about. I'm like, man, I want to hear that again. And go back, because we've covered some really important things over the years. I agree. Thanks. No question. Yep, absolutely. All right, we will see you next month. Can't wait to find out what we will be discussing then. Back after this on O Brother Radio. To listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa, at bhammountainradio.com, or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter at Lockamy Brothers. <laughs>